Greetings, future fossils. If you happen to find this episode in a buried archive on the moon, know that I am recording this in the first week of June 2020, when the United States and much of the rest of the world has exploded into riots and protests, raging for change in the wake of the police murder of George Floyd, the latest in a string of unspeakable atrocities committed upon people of color by unaccountable authorities. I wish that I had an episode for you in which I was able to give voice to the black community and the Native American community, both of whom also happen to be suffering disproportionately from the coronavirus pandemic because of a number of structural and systemic inequalities, including the inability of the economically impoverished to socially distance from one another, as well as unequal access to health care and other resources in an already extremely poor social support network here in the United States. But what I do have for you this week seems strangely appropriate because this is a talk I've been sitting on now for over three years, a talk I gave at Earth Frequency Festival in Australia in February of 2017. The festival picked for me the topic of AI, VR, and psychedelic transhumanism, but by the time I made it to the stage to speak, I was following a presentation by my friends Jamaica Stevens and Becca Dakini on the Standing Rock protests, and they showed a short documentary showing the police hosing and gassing these peaceful protesters who were standing up for their clean water rights and the sanctity of their ancestral homelands. And so it's a very odd historical rhyme now to be sharing this talk with you because what this is about is fixing our broken narratives, starting at the beginning of life and letting the wilderness back into our myths of human history, telling the story of the evolution of the biosphere in a way that deconstructs our exceptionalism, our human privilege, and calls into question the, the extremely narrow-minded and short-sighted stories that have gotten us into this mess in the first place. Working with Santa Fe Institute on Complexity Podcast, we just put out a piece this week on the future of the human climate niche and how climate change is going to disproportionately affect the developing world. The fastest growing populations on Earth are in places that are going to be hit the hardest. And I just finished editing next week's episode of Complexity Podcast about the implicit racism of insufficiently complex mathematical models and how in order to care for something, we first have to recognize it and include it in our maps of the cosmos. So I've been thinking about how all of these problems that we face collectively and not so collectively 
right now are intertwined. We can't ask for that kind of a shift in awareness and exclude the concomitant shift towards social justice that must attend it. I mean, there's no way we can be one with the biosphere and yet separate from our brothers and sisters who live right next door geographically and yet inhabit a very different social reality. I've mentioned a few times on this show that I am a veteran of the drug war, that I was uh, arrested after an unconstitutional search. I've spent time under state supervision. My case was handled in an extremely crooked court where I saw someone sentenced to death and where the judge ultimately was himself convicted for multiple counts of selling machine guns to Mexican gangsters. So I, I do know what it is to be caught within the jaws of an extremely crooked and evil system. And I am extremely lucky that I am not serving time in prison myself right now and that I have the privilege to sit here and to provide this show for you. So ordinarily, this would be where I make my pitch to join me on Patreon and to help support this show. I hope that you do. It's a major part of my livelihood and uh, what allows me to be a parent and to find the time to nourish community. And I, I really want to thank everyone who has recently joined on to support the show, including Solvay Swenson, Brandon Brown, Yoval Klejan, Jonathan Engel, Logan Souter, Jay Armstrong, Jay Taylor. I'm deeply grateful. But I want to suggest this week that if you have the resources to do so, you direct your financial support to Black Lives Matter or to the Unicorn Riot or to any of the other social justice groups that are working very hard right now and putting their lives and their freedom on the line to make the necessary change that history is calling for at this time. I'm also auctioning all of my available original paintings and my stock of canvas art prints in support of ACLU and Unicorn Riot. A hundred percent of my sales from those for the next couple of weeks is going to be divided between those two organizations. So if you want to put your money behind a good cause and also get some lovely artwork, Michael Garfield, and you can find uh, pictures and links to all of the work that I have for sale to support these organizations right now. I'm also donating all of the revenue that I'm making this month from music sales at uh, michaelgarfield.bandcamp.com. So if you're more in the cup of coffee spending range, I hope you'll consider that. If you have more time than money and want to help but don't know how, there's an excellent uh, Google Doc I've seen circulating, www.ally.tools. You look up and you explore and you, you find ways to use the privilege that you have, uh, whatever shape that may take for you, to throw in and help row this boat in the right direction. 
this is an especially long episode, and it's weird how synchronous this long overdue publication is. I get into a lot of detail about my critiques of Elon Musk and SpaceX. I talk about the return of the archetype of the Black Madonna, the matron saint of oppressed peoples and refugees. But broadly, this is about rewilding the future by anchoring our narratives about the future in deep time and an understanding of the numerous tragedies that we have already endured as the biosphere. I hope that it helps you keep things in perspective to see your role in that long arc of history as it bends towards justice. Feel free to reach out to me anytime, futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com, at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram. I'm especially interested in hearing your suggestions for people of color whose voice I can amplify as guests on this show. And whatever else, suggestions, comments, questions, feedback you have for me, I appreciate it. I hope that you're safe. I hope that you are staying sure-footed in the yoga of optimism that is required of us in these times. Thank you for listening. like recording for posterity if we're not doing this for them why are we doing it the talk I'm supposed to be giving you tonight is called artificial intelligence virtual reality and psychedelic transhumanism I think every single one of these terms is problematic <laughs> and I'm not sure that I really uh, care to go there right away, especially after what we all just sat through here. I think the thing that wishes to be said right now is what I wish I didn't have to say, which is we're living through a mass extinction. <laughs> I'm known for going right there, so I hope that all of you, since you just lived through that talk, can forgive me, or at least stay with it. I got my training in the sciences, the evolutionary sciences, and as the Pulitzer Prize winning author Annie Dillard, author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, says in that book, Evolution loves nothing more than death. So to study evolution is, in a sense, to be a messenger of death and to communicate the wisdom on the other side of that grinning skull to you, to do what I can, if I can, to help you find some peace amidst this change.
this turbulence. So I would like to, even first, before I get into the futuristic jibber-jabber, in which I just repeat my own culture's linear time myth on you, I would like to take you through what I believe is essential to understanding where we stand right now as a species and as a planet and as beings, sentient beings, because I'm here on the good graces of evolutionary scientists and my, my mentor, Dr. Bruce Damer, who is a uh, former NASA consultant and an origins of life researcher who just presented at a conference suggesting if we were to go to Mars, where would we land? Where are the spots that might be most interesting to land on Mars? Where are the spots that might be most suitable? But also scientifically, like where are the spots that we might be most likely to find life on Mars if we were to look for it? This is the guy that came out to Australia two years ago on a speaking tour and met all of the people that are now my friends and introduced me to them. And he is the conduit of all this hospitality for me. So thank you, Bruce. And our relationship is bound by or held within this understanding that we're living through the moment in between two stories. That we are moving out of one story and into a space of what Douglas Rushkoff calls narrative collapse. Too much information. We can't possibly arrange it all now, can we? No. No, let's not even try. It, it, part of what is going on right now is that we're, our science is moving out of a story of increasing control over nature and into the converging line on spirituality where every question answered raises five new questions and we all acknowledge that the process of the scientific method is an end unto itself that this constant curiosity is our best adaptation to an age in which we know that we have no control and that our curiosity is our prescription because fear and curiosity cannot coexist. So I am here to pick up where Bruce left off in a way and help you articulate a story that might work for a little while, not a permanent story, but a raft that we can surf this change on till we get to something solid. If we get to something solid, or maybe we can just use this story as the temporary station for our wing building experiments and move on from our insistence on this solid ground. After all, it is the albatross, the longest migrating bird in the world that turns out to be the most monogamous bird in the world, the most loyal. They only see each other every couple of years. How sweet is that? 
They rarely even see the solid ground. They're, they're engineered if we can start to digest this nature and technology divide, which really only lives in language to begin with. They're engineered to soar, to live on currents, to fly across the world without flapping their wings. And so there's a beautiful working with that I think is emblemized by the albatross, this, this thing that uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the poet in his Rime of the Ancient Mariner said was this, this dead albatross that the sailor had, had killed that was hung around him in his, as his burden as his ship and the sea itself rose in mutiny against his act of disrespect. So to reclaim the albatross is, in a sense, to strive to undo what we've done by trying to control the natural world and its messages to us. And incidentally, I learned about this not through school. I had a way of faking that I'd read what I was supposed to in school. But I learned this by watching a documentary about the scientific illustrator Ernst Haeckel, who many of you probably would recognize. His work has permeated our collective consciousness. He was the illustrator who coined the term ecology after he was commissioned to illustrate over 5,000 species of creature that had been dredged up by the HMS Challenger mission, which was the first transoceanic ocean, is this a scientific expedition. I learned about all this in a documentary called Proteus, which paints the story of the 19th century and its foundation of the 20th and consequently ours, the 21st, because it all begins in our attempt to transmit telegraphic information over the Atlantic, rather through from London to New York, New York to London, stock prices, commerce in this case, revealed to us our oceanic unconscious, the world of life that lives at the bottom of the ocean that we did not believe exists until we broke this telegraphic cable twice and pulled it up and found that it had crusted over with all kinds of curious creatures. And so they sent the HMS Challenger out into the world to send a, a net down, a box, and gather up specimens of the ocean floor and to return them to this fellow, Ernst Haeckel, who as a natural scientist, in the 19th century, we didn't really have science as we understand it now. We had natural philosophy. And it was understood that our investigations of the natural world were investigations of the mind of God. And this is how both Heckel, also Charles Darwin, also Darwin's history repressed co-author, Alfred Russell Wallace, saw this. They saw evolution as unfolding and divine mathematics, God's thoughts that each of us in what Darwin called the tangled bank of evolutionary influences. 
our ideas in the mind of the creator. And we lost that somewhere, but I stand in this lineage of natural philosophers and historians whose undivided sight acknowledges that there are funny things about this world, like how the technological transformation of independent continents into a global information system represents, in some case, even as it destroys our native ecosystems, the fruit or product of our yearning for a deeper intimacy with each other. That the bandwidth grows in concert with our yearning for communication. And this much is clear to me. I stood here on Valentine's Day at Byron Bay on the easternmost point of Australia. And I sent a note to my wife in Austin, Texas, the closest I could get to her. Just as when I was in Portugal last summer, I stood on Cabo de Roca, the westernmost point of Europe. And it's beautiful that life has sent me to these places where I can make these mythic statements of affection. But it is because I recognize the non-duality key term of bridges and walls. The way that that which divides us brings us into deeper understanding of each other. The way that sometimes that which we think connects us turns out to cut the other way as well. So in this tradition, I think it's important to offer a, a narrative that stretches back a little further than the narratives that occupy us on a daily basis. My narrative begins four billion years ago. Well, really five. The Earth is just a cloud of crap around the sun. It hasn't really formed yet. And as it does, it draws more meteors and comets, larger chunks of stuff into an aggregation. And as this happens, as it grows a gravitational field, it pulls in comets from the outer solar system. And comets have a funny way of producing the necessary precursors for life. This is actually a relatively recent discovery in the last few decades that we've learned that there's this combination of carbon and ice and the uh, electrical properties of comets as they move through space that organize these raw ingredients into amino acids and nucleotides. The very things that we require to build RNA and DNA and proteins. So as soon as Earth was cool enough to harbor life, it did. It had whatever it required. And contrary to what you may have learned in school, the irreducible complexity of life is not a constant die roll just waiting to occur. If you were to take the, even the simplest cell and put its pieces together randomly with one die roll every second, you would not have enough time in the entire history of the universe to do this. And this is a critique leveraged by creationists who don't understand emergence as a fundamental property of the world in which we live. 
that when two things come together, they create a third, the relationship. And out of that third, uh, how many of you know the Vesic Pisces? It's a sacred geometrical term. If you toss two stones into a pond, the place those ripples overlap forms a vagina or a fish. Their original symbol of Christianity, the fish, this free order. Jesus takes one fish and feeds everyone because out of that emptiness, out of that space in the middle of things, that pattern of relationships creates a fractal boundary, a fractionally dimensional boundary. And out of that boundary, like if you think of like the swirl of the coastline of Australia as an example, and the way it's sandstone shores rust over and then are eroded out from within and create these gorgeous complicated shapes that draw our attention into them and the closer we look the closer we realize that we don't know where ocean starts and land begins there is the start of life my friends bruce namer's work recently has taken the origins of life out of the oceans, out of deep sea vents, and even intertidal zones, and placed it in a shallow pond right by the seaside, where this combination of organic molecules and constantly challenged environments, these pools dry out and leave these sediments of broth essentially. And this broth made the first membranes. This broth was enough. Like if you think about it in terms of computation, every little pond on every little coastline all over the world in massive parallel computing something that we thought was impossible by rolling one die over and over and over again. And so, of course, it happens right away. It's at the intersections, at the boundaries, life thrives. And arguably, everywhere we look, a boundary. I don't see an end to this universe, so I have to bracket everything I say about decay or growth by saying that these terms, as well as their more rigorous scientific counterparts like entropy and extropy, these measures of the amount of order or disorder in a system, all of these are necessarily framed by our ability to design an experiment inside a box. That box suggests a world outside that box. As any four-year-old will tell you, if God started it, who started God? And so, we cannot really get to a conclusion about whether everything is running down or spiraling into some orgasm of awesomeness where everything's connected. Sorry, folks, you live inside the singularity. And consequently, I hope that you all learn to see and in everything, the ocean and the land the self and other.
the way that everything is constantly both dying and being born. And if really, if you're not into all this evolutionary mumbo jumbo, please just take with you out tonight that both creation and destruction, as we understand them, are mere artifacts of our divided nervous system and the way that we sense by determining a boundary. And so our language comes from our discriminations. That's not a bad thing, really. I mean, as Diane Musho Hamilton, the heir apparent to the oldest Zen lineage in the United States says, it's not what you do, it's what you do next. Oh, you're a recovering alcoholic, you fell off the wagon? Well, notice that and don't do that again, you know? And we, we tend to cramp ourselves on things exactly where we fail to notice things. Our myth begins where our awareness ends. You know, the God mind capable of holding everything at once decays into a bunch of us that have a hard time understanding, literally standing under this conceptual elephant, looking at it from these different angles, trying to determine everything and filter it through this insanity. And so this notion of good and bad in the grandest possible context I can speak about is determined by consensus. It's not to say that it does not exist. It is to say that good and bad are where we meet and do not meet. That morals are a conversation, not a law inherited from some external source on high. And so life starts and every step along the way, catastrophe. We don't actually know when life began because the oldest rocks on Earth have been destroyed by volcanic activity and giant meteor impacts like the kind some people think created the moon. It's arguable, but I won't get into that. I mean, just as, a, as an aside, this is an object in the sky that's 1 400th the diameter and distance of the sun for the first time in the history of this planet. Its orbit decays, so it has not always been the same size in the sky to an observer on the ground. And now it is exactly when there are human eyes to observe it. That's a little curious and unsettling to me. Also that it is 27.322% the mass of Earth, or the diameter, excuse me, and 27.322 days, lunar days, for it to orbit Earth. It's almost like a clue. But I'm not going to tell you it was aliens, because that's insane. Anyway, life had a hard beginning. And in fact, like I, I just said, we don't really know how many times life started. In fact, I think, you know, the idea that life is impossible or just so fragile is actually mistaken. And that 
in all likelihood, life started like all good ideas in one more than one place simultaneously, and like all good ideas, reasserted itself over and over and over as its revolutionary uprising from insensate matter to iPod wielding commuters to perpetuate an awful trope. This revolutionary uprise feels alive right now to me. And so we can tell the story of life protesting against non-life if we insist on organizing things according to a narrative, which I kind of did from the start of this presentation, I apologize. There's no real other way to talk about this. Language is that way. Life happens, meteor occurs, life happens somewhere else, just like we witnessed Standing Rock against the meteoric iron of the state, this life and death, this fruitful novelty at the borders, at the boundaries, at the intersections. It's just the same thing that has always been. And finally, things cooled down somewhat. Earth, and actually mostly Jupiter, swept up most of the crap floating around and protected all of the inner planets from more regular meteoric bombardment. And at that point, we had a moon, which is really cool because the moon creates tides, and those tides ripped minerals out of the Earth and gave them into the ocean and created a place for life to thrive. And that the, the tides washed up and pulled our distant ancestors down into the sea. And that's how life began, not in the ocean. Actually, in a weird way, oceans are the oldest colony. When we talk about corals, colonies of corals, that's not wrong. That's actually an interesting point because a, a, a larval coral, before it settles down, is a free-swimming independent creature. And then as it matures, it shares a nervous system and a skeletal system and a digestive system with all of its buddies. It's like a work, giant worker co-op. And this is not the first time that this has happened. Even before corals, we had what they call stromatolites. And actually, Australia is the last place on Earth that you can go to see these things. I think they're out on, on the west end of this continent. But stromatolites are like a giant city of bacteria. There's layers and layers and layers and it's the first real evidence that we have in the fossil record of life coming together to form a collaborative thing, except that now our origins go back to saying that life seems to have happened even before the invention of a cellular membrane, which in some sense is kind of like inventing the wall of a city or you know, suburbs or something. Once upon a time, it was just nucleic acids, the raw identity, the stuff of life in these ponds getting promiscuous, exchanging selfhood, what rudimentary selfhood we had, exchanging identity freely 
And then we got creative and we realized we could form a spaceship and those early cells became a platform of individuation. And in some sense, ever since we can tell the story of life as this wave, as this rhythm of an emphasis on individuation and collectivization. Although, again, a natural philosopher, the Jesuit paleontologist Pierre Teilhard de Chardin says in, in one of the books that got him excommunicated from the church, hyper-collectivization leads to hyper-personalization and that the city with, as this new membrane created all these novel opportunities for people to differentiate, to, be, to, to move from these basic roles and rules of hunter-gatherer society, the poorly differentiated boundaries between us, enviable in some sense, and then into these, these new niches, the potter, the priest, okay, the doctor. And we're witnessing a phenomenon like this going on right now, although I'm getting way ahead of the story here. Spoiler alert. As we digest the boundaries of the state, then we're transmuted into the new global polity of this planetary identity that's coming awake right now. And in that new planetary polity, it no longer makes sense, it's no longer adaptive to adhere to the same strict and boundaried identifications that we've had, which is why right now we're witnessing the digestion or emulsification of gender, of national identity, of job description. I mean, my friends that live in New York City they do things that I don't understand. I say, what do you do for work? And they say, well, I mail things for these five people. That has no description. That's not a, I mean, that's not a job title, I guess, really. It's an ecosystem. It is the concrete jungle. And in that ecosystem, epiphytes emerge, little plants that grow on other plants. And that little plant growing on another plant creates this perfect little crotch there where, oh, I could grow another plant right there. You know, that's, that's life. That's fractal. That's on the boundaries. We see, oh, you're not catching that tiny little piece of sunlight. I'm going to catch that. And so the bigger our society, the more those tiny little pieces will avail themselves to us. And in the process, what we lose is the kind of general scrappy, omnivorous, do-anything capacity of a desert creature, and we move into this highly specialized, very interdependent, very fragile as individuals, but anti-fragile as collectives, new and jungle ecosystem. And I see culture as participating in this now that we have watered everything with our communications and the psychedelics that inspired those communication methods 
actually it's a uh, an open secret that most of the people working on the early internet were trippers. Most of the people working on the uh, personal computing revolution and the mathematics that we use now in chaos theory and uh, Carrie Mullis who invented the, the polymerase chain reaction and won the Nobel Prize for allowing us to synthesize DNA, to study DNA in the laboratory the way that we do now to turn life into a technology that he admits that he came up with this on LSD, that Francis Crick said that he and his comrades were microdosing while they worked this out. But at any rate, we're moving into this more complicated thing where the strategies of the ego that developed within the membrane of a walled agrarian society no longer work. And with those strategies, we lose a lot of these distinctions. Like I said, the nature and technology distinction, the boy and girl distinction. So admittedly, it's kind of scary. Actually, Tibetan Buddhism, I think, has it actually goes before Buddhism, the, uh, the, the Bardo Total, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, which is read into the ear aloud to a dying person, predates Buddhism. But it's all about the decay of the senses, the signal into noise. And as Ramdas says that Neem Karoli Baba said to him, perhaps death's just like taking off a shoe that's too tight. It doesn't suit us anymore. Earth our cradle, we can't live in it forever. And I, that's not to say, before you jump on me, that we should go to Mars to save ourselves, to get off of this sinking ship. That's bullshit. What? Yeah, well, as it happens, I am friends with a team of people in the United States who built this thing called Biosphere 2 in the 1990s. That was a product of a secret intergovernmental project to explore the possibility of life on Mars. It, as it happens, in behind the Cold War, here's another perfect example of how a wall and a bridge are not so easily defined. Scientific research, scientific collaboration between the U.S. And, and Russia never actually stopped. And in the 1970s, they had mapped the geography of Mars and were planning how it is that we could learn what we must learn about our planet following advice of people like the uh, famous U.S. astronaut mystic Russi Schweikert who came back and said there are no boundaries observable from space. And that was still true in the 70s, and now we can see evidence of ecocide along a national division. But this awesome team of people came together and said, look, we can't just go to space. And no, we can't just stay here either. That we have to move from thinking of ourselves as human beings to thinking of ourselves as participants within a biosphere, as stewards, as the central nervous system may be, or decisive function within that system. And that if we're to go to space, then we will have to take our ecosystems with us. 
that we can't just bounce, as it were, but that when we do finally land on Mars, we'll land as Earth on Mars. We'll land as emissaries of a planet, not as emissaries of a nation. And the next space race is occurring now. It's not a race against each other. That's all just theatrics, people. We knew once we dropped the first bomb that the fallout blows across the world, that we're implicated in the consequences of everything we do. And that recognition, the psychedelic impact, the bad trip of the atom bomb led to this schism, this new opportunity, these two new niches, the technocrats and mystics. This is all articulated, by the way, by William Irwin Thompson in his 1976 book, Evil and World Order, which I highly recommend. If you are interested in non-dual thinking about complex planetary systems. So technocrats, they seek to control. Mystics acknowledge control is impossible and that the opponent is implicated within your own identity, that, that if you're going to side with just one half of that yin-yang, the other is included in you. So both sides come together and represent the polarities of a new axis of the development of culture and society in the last hundred years that sort of grew out of the simpler axis of the artist and the industrialist. But, you know, as these things tend to go, the artist was subsumed and now we hang their paintings on the walls of banks. If this was not more obvious, I gave a talk at a bank two weeks ago. I could not believe that I was talking about psychedelic transhumanism in a bank. But as it happens, even these most rigid institutions now recognize the need to innovate and has been, as has been the case for 70 or 80 years, the corporate world has poured its work on R&D, on research and design, because as my cousin who consulted with the BMW group in Berlin told me, she said the BMW now has a department of internal disruption. They're no longer waiting for the change to happen to them because we're savvy now. We know that we extend our nervous systems, as Marshall McLuhan said, through these fiber optics out into the world. And the world is in us as we are all in it. And so you can't adapt. You can't make sense of what is happening if you think it's just happening out there. That's how we end up with the war on drugs or terrorism or these things that reproduce themselves in every fractured psyche for eternity because it's not out there at all. There is no out there. And that is a takeaway as far as this talk's title is concerned, the virtual reality part. Folks, you live in virtual reality. You live in 50 layers of it.
The most recent is called Language. And uh, before that, it's the nervous, the central nervous system as it represents a world to you, as it filters data from the senses and collects them in a head. That's not typical for everything. The head is just a strategy explored by certain kinds of life. You find it missing in some others, many others. For example, clams who had a head and lost it when collectively clams chose or didn't choose to hunker down and anchor rather than release and swim to live in intertidal zones. And I think these represent two early aspects of this choice that evolution finds itself. As Yogi Berra said, when he arrives at the fork in the road, he takes it. That evolution is a branching process and it takes each branch. It opens every branch, just like a bank. The tangled bank of evolution, Charles Darwin. The fish and the clam, these strategies, to hunker down, to anchor in familiarity, to nestle in tradition, to nestle in identity, to cling to what we know. It doesn't take a savvy person. It doesn't take a brain to do this. In fact, all it takes is reflex. Your toes do this on their own. You don't have to be that smart to resist what is happening to us. And in fact, as Alvin and Marie Toffler said in their book, Future Shock, prescient book also from the 70s, said, you know, as, as things are getting faster and faster, people are going to get more and more resistant to the change. Whereas Stuart Brand, who petitioned the United States government for the photographs of the first public photographs of Earth from space, said, when progress happens fast enough, it becomes change and people fear it and they want it to stop. Future shock, folks, is what we're experiencing. It's that first hour of the acid trip. We're collectively experiencing this now as we move through what I guess is a catastrophe of creativity, not a total decay of order. And I know that I started this talk by saying we're living through a mass extinction, but a main point that I hope to reach here is that actually every mass extinction happened out of this explosion of creative novelty, of the things that could not be accounted for, like flowers. Flowers were a catastrophe, but I'll get back to that in a second because I want to talk about the alternate to being a clam. The alternate to being a clam is to be a fish. Our earliest ancestor, all vertebrates, this little thing that we found in the, uh, the Cambrian Shale of Canada, the Burgess Shale, is uh, called the Pikea. It's the closest relative that we have. It's this little, it looks kind of like a snail or a swimming slug, but it's got the very beginnings of a notochord, that nerve line that becomes a spinal column. So in a real sense, the alternative to anchoring in our future shock and becoming the clam, we see a precedent in fish because our nearest relative now, the nearest outgroup to the vertebrates, 
They're called the tunicates, the sea squirts. And they start just like Pakea as this swimming little thing. And then they find a spot they like, they settle down, and they open a bank account. They become filter feeders. And uh, just as one day, Wally's prophecy, the Disney Wally, of us all embedded in our virtual reality couches, just eating junk food, or more probably more accurately, sipping out of our IVs like matrix pods. That's only for the folks who do not wish to bother with a mess of living. You choose the blue pill? No, you don't, really. You can really only choose the red pill. Again, that Diane Musho Hamilton, it's not what you do, it's what you do next. The, the process of becoming aware actually reveals that you never had a choice to begin with, except to continually redirect your attention to the process of becoming aware. And if you do that enough, as any long-term meditator will tell you, then you realize that you you become aware enough, you, you kind of like roto-root your bullshit nervous system story, and you see how everything is choosing, that it's automatic, that there's no choice to begin with, and that therefore none of us have any say over when we become enlightened because it is this constant thing of the emergence of that grace that novelty out of that cosmic vesica pisces the intersection of colliding infinities that each of us is that still center that caramel nougat the sensuality of being it's not just empty folks it's full it's full of voices Void is rich with information, and we're learning this mathematically. We know now that noise is actually required as a carrier of signal, and that the deeper that we plumb what we believe as random, we discover information, that the mathematical definition of randomness is no perceivable pattern. And now's a good point to bring up that there's a a common misunderstanding about this chaos theory notion of the butterfly effect. This thing that we are all connected and that butterfly flaps its wings in Brazil and then there's a hurricane in China. Yes, we can point in that way. We can cut through this omniverse and find these vectors of causation. But that's just the storytelling processes of human brains trying to like find the the angle and really the way that this was originally articulated by the founders of chaos theory was that the butterfly effect is you can never account for that small thing that the more you try to map the system the more you realize there are butterflies that don't fit in your computer model you know, and then you model the butterfly, you upload the, the human brain, and then you're like, wait a minute, I should have up, damn, I should have uploaded the whole body. And then you're like, damn, well, it turns out that mind isn't just in the body, it's in this matrix of relationships that all these cybernetic theorists, this is where the psychedelic transhumanism comes in, because the founders of the cybernetic world we live in said this, Gregory Bateson said this, he said, 
mind at large, that mind emerges from the pattern of relationships, that mind exists beyond the body, that it's not in the body actually at all, that the body and the mind are two dimensions of this thing that we describe in different ways. And so you can't upload a mind without uploading the entire universe. Good luck with that, folks. We can only get more accurate more precise in our modeling. And so at any rate, fish and clams. <laughs> I think that these two strategies are, are useful for us to understand what's going on here. They represent two kinds of collectivity. The clams don't move together. They just live together. A sanguinal blood ties or geographic polity. Proximity or blood relations. This is where we come from, folks. We're all still technically a sanguinal and geographic polity. We're all on Earth. We're all descendants of that last pond orgy thing, the common ancestor. But then new layers form as people distance themselves from their blood relations, as people leave the communities of their birth, as the forces of history pick up and scatter us around the world as fate arrives, as the moving whirlwind, as William Irwin Thompson said. We form noetic polities, affiliations of the mind. We learn to link up with these folks who live on other sides of things, to shout around the mountain. And once we've done that, then we can form a ring. And once we've girdled everything, once we've enmeshed it, in a world wide web that looks more than anything like the network of mycelia existing underneath these trees, connecting them, reallocating nutrients between them, challenging our early naive notions of identity and species in a wood, then each of us appears in a new light as points at which this network grows a person. We start to recognize if we can handle the complexity of narrative collapse of all this information, challenging a single myth, then we can see each myth as one of many tendrils that connect in novel ways for each of us, each story, and each mind, each person as the intersection of these stories to the limited extent that we identify as people to begin with and not pure awareness in which people happen. That's an Alan Watts thing. I like that. That the ocean waves and that the universe peoples. That's a vocabulary word, denominalization the removal of the name it's that it's turning a noun into a verb to bank is one such example and we're actually we're experiencing this in the english language quite a bit right now because every noun that we have is becoming a verb ownership is becoming subscription it's becoming access privacy or rather the concerns of privacy the security are becoming fluid in light of 
a new, more agile understanding of how networked information provides anti-fragile community. And so we see this again and again and again. And I, I mentioned that I was going to talk about flowers here because this is one of my most cherished and subversive notions as a guy who grew up studying the age of dinosaurs. Most folks don't know that in the 160 million years the dinosaurs ruled the earth. I mean, let's face it. No, no. Bacteria have always been in charge on some level. You know, I mean, we're basically just walking cities of bacteria. But, you know, when dinosaurs were the best new idea for about 80 million years, right in the middle there, one of these mass extinctions that we don't really hear about in school was at the end of the Jurassic period. And you can, you can see this. This is the moment that we get, like, Brontosaurus and Stegosaurus, at least in the northern hemisphere. I don't know what the batshit dinosaurs down here are. But... <laughs> Fascinating, actually. It's totally strange. Uh, that's a perfect example of this one continent, Pangaea, breaks apart and forms a northern and a southern continent, Laurasia and Gondwana land. And so you get these converging strategies, similar approaches. Like Tyrannosaurus, though more popular up north, uh, you have Procarodontosaurus, Gigantosaurus. These creatures that took the exact same idea in the Southern Hemisphere because a good idea occurs in multiple locations. But at any rate, about halfway through the age of dinosaurs, you get this punctuation mark. That punctuation mark is flowers. Flowers fucked it up for everybody. Because what was once so simple, tree ferns, conifers, tradition, I mean, the Sierra Club, folks, John Muir's legendary conservation organization in the United States, the logo are these plants that lost in some important measure to the plants that figured out, wait, we don't just have to rely on the breeze. We don't just have to allow the vagaries of chance to carry our seed from the male to female node. We can get these little Bird, these little things to do it. It wasn't birds at first, it was just bugs. And we can get these bugs to get our pollen on their wings, and if we trick them with this glowing, constellated, throbby, folding, involuted thing, I point to our main stage as evidence for how we now transpollinate our cultural memetics, that this stuff was predicated by the flower, that we started with the flower as a transspecies and erotic gesture, saying, look, just like that first telegraphic cable between the continents, saying, I kind of want to get laid. Let's see if we can throw a rope across that bridge and come on over here. And how are we going to do that? Well, let's, let's employ the bugs, because they're cheap labor. And so bugs are easy to deceive. All you got to do is make a flower that looks like a female bee, and the male bee will try and mate with it. Or airport runways. If you look at an airport from space, it looks like a flower, you know, because it's actually this reinvention of the wheel, the literal wheel, the mandala of this novelty, this thing. And as soon as we did this, um, 
we we reinvented sex. I'm, I'm, I'm citing Richard Doyle here, whose book, Darwin's Pharmacy, Sex, Plants, and the Evolution of the Noosphere. I highly recommend to anybody who can like hack it. It took years for me to read. His language is so juicy, dense, delicious. It's like cheesecake for your brain. It might undo whatever brain cheesecake television did to you. At any rate, he's a rhetorician. He, he studies communication and he says that the flower is a rhetorical object. It gathers the attention of the pollinator. And so in that way, it's actually an example of this new trans species identity, the flowering plant and pollinator that cannot exist without each other any more than the artist and the industrialist or the mystic and the technocrat can exist without each other, that we co-define just as we codify. And so the flowers open up this novel combinatorial matrix of possibility. Suddenly, all of these different opportunities emerge. Each bug can pollinate a different kind of flower. This is why when asked about this, I think it was Thomas Huxley or Gideon Mantell, Forgive me for spacing, it's been a long weekend. One of the 19th century paleontologists who uh, was the early dinosaur researchers, if he was asked to posit on the mind of God, he would say that God had an inordinate fondness for beetles. Because there are so many different kinds. What the hell, God? Well, as it happens, it's because each flower represents a niche, a new identity. Each flower is the yang that appears as that little yin, a bug, that's some other kind of yang emerging from a, a yin matrix of forest ecological relationships, can then enter and extract a bit of nectar. And so fruit, you guys, fruit was a strategy for duping us into the work of sex for somebody else. Of course, we can't really say that anymore because I mean, the entire like primate color vision system is like completely dependent on determining fruit ripeness, which is why uh, we wear lipstick made out of crushed beetles, ironically. <laughs> Nature really gets around. So, Stegosaurus, this is my dirge to Stegosaurus, who lived on the tree ferns and coniferous plants and could not adapt to this rapidly diversifying ecosystem of interdependent relationships precipitated by the flower. But you know who thrived in these conditions? Birds. The birds emerged from this. The birds could not have happened earlier. And at the end of the Jurassic, we see this proliferation of new pollinators as the matrix, as the niche, as the substrate from which savvy entrepreneurial little dinosaurs who were already covered in feathers and probably already also gliding from branch to branch like contemporary flying squirrels as just yet another of these good ideas that we see happen time and time again said hmm i'll have some of that please and so we get the beginning of what we now know as the long, slow demise of dinosaurs. But folks, that took another 80 million years and only happened because not just comets, not just meteors, 
but also a complex convergence of catastrophic forces basically declared the end of dinosaurs at 65 million years ago. They, there was a not just the Chicxulub meteor crater in Mexico, but also the Deccan Traps in India, where for two million years an enormous volcanic eruption had been going on. It wasn't really a good time to be alive for anyone. And so the most rigid and inflexible forms, and we now know that there is such a thing as genetic senescence, oddly enough that there is there is a sense in which individual lineages of organisms become more and more genetically inflexible. And then they go through these catastrophic bifurcations and these, you know, this youthful effleuration and then settle down again and tense up and get old. And all of this is reproduced at every level we observe. And so birds were already in place as every good idea is waiting in the wing for dinosaurs to drop. And as a takeaway, I'd say what we have now is a situation where the crisis that's precipitating all of this is just collapsing that which already is doomed to fail and ideas that everything we need to know about the world that we're going to inhabit is there and that we're just having difficulty in deploying it because there's interference from these rigid structures you know that you I mean it's not really accurate to to talk about oil and dinosaurs in the same sentence most almost every drop of oil is generated by uh like either bacterial mats or you know like uh, coal forests like old forests you know the vast majority of life on earth is not animal life and so this whole notion of this you know sinclair oil company with the dinosaur logo is just it's just malware in your mind extract it as they extract the oil you know you're starting to pick up the complementarity here i hope so here we are and i think i could go on about life's numerous transitions but we're at a cool point now i've given you guys the the symmetry and the reciprocity that you know i'm using to articulate anything i have useful to say about this title of this talk artificial intelligence and uh virtual reality and uh, psychedelic transhumanism <laughs> because um actually i wanted to i wanted to title this talk how to live in the future which is also cheeky <laughs> since we cannot really live in the future except to the extent that we project ourselves and what we think we know into the future except to the extent that we're modeling the future on what we know of the present which is of course based on what we know of the past which is also in a weird way sculpted by our expectations of the future that that this myth grows like a flower out of here right now like athena right a shout out to my homie colin elder drawing all these lovely ladies intermixed with owls this is true he and i both came out of biology and so we had a, a fabulous chat when we uh landed here in Australia and uh, we were both painting at Rainbow Serpent Festival and I was talking about how I got my start as a scientific illustrator and he got his start as a conservation tour guide and he decided that he was less eloquent 
as a verbalist and that he needed to paint. And I decided that I wasn't really uh, communicating what I needed to in images and had to play the poetry to do it. So I suppose I should probably ask him to do the cover of my book or something. <laughs> At any rate, we're here now and I hope that all of you move out into this increasingly weird, tense, urgent, scary conversation around computer sentience and virtual environments and understand that this is really just more of the same. That we've been doing this for quite a while now as Earth and probably much longer and as our methods of discovery of archaeology as our investigations dig a layer deeper than we can by studying the sediments of earth which as i mentioned earlier have now been metamorphosed all those early rocks have been worked over so the methods of the evolutionary biologists and stratigraphers can only go back so far but perhaps we'll find a quantum archaeology and we can study things through wormholes or something. And this is, it's, it's not just my idea. This was actually posed by Arthur C. Clarke in his, his last novel, co-written by Stephen Baxter, The Light of Other Days, that we, we find a, a way to actually peer through a wormhole and then use Einstein's relativistic equations, we can transform space and time in the equation. And that therefore, like if the further we can stretch a wormhole in space, we can stretch it back in, in, we can anchor it at some point in the distant past and then discover that this isn't just the first time life has happened here on earth, that it got snuffed out 50 times or something, that it happens everywhere it can. And then, everywhere it grows a planetary brain it can and then those planets grow together they start growing flowers and communicating with each other and we're probably already in this in fact as my favorite sci-fi author right now john c wright suggests in one of his most brilliant works this project progress this effort to transcend ourselves. As Tim Leary said, the SMILE program of evolution, space migration, intelligence increase, and life expansion. SMILE. That, that this progress may actually not be the first time that we've been through this, and that, that what Pierre Teilhard de Chardin saw as the omega point, the moment at which everything combines, collects, and gathers into God prehending itself. We may get to that point and realize that we had just forgotten that we'd done this an infinite number of times before. That like this effort that's going on right now to create an interplanetary internet may be the, uh, the recovery of a stroke victim. That the, the galaxy may have already had a unified post-biological intelligence that broke apart and now we're just beginning to intuit that we might one day remember this yeah. so i will sacrifice the music that i dragged out here for you 
in light of questions, if you have them. The Vesica Pisces is the intersection of two circles. It's the Venn diagram, you know that, that thing? It's it's the place, it's the it's that that opening. Dude, I mean we're just hypothesizing a galactic stroke here. I'm not saying that for sure it happens. However, I'll lay this idea on you because it is awesome. The Copernican principle, you know, like we thought the world revolved around us then we realized that the world revolved around another world that revolved around another world elon musk incidentally who is leading us down a very suspicious and wrong-headed path to colonizing mars in the opinion of bruce damer and the folks who've studied this stuff for a while and are not just coming into it as colonialist fucking entrepreneurs no no offense to uh, SpaceX, but let's see it for what it is. That, you know, there it was, I had one, the galactic stroke. You can only handle so much of this before it just poops out. But yeah, the Copernican principle is that we actually, and it's ironic, I think that Elon Musk is the guy who introduced this notion that we're, we're probably already living in a virtual reality you know, because if it's possible to make a virtual reality, then are we really the first? No, we're not. That this is a bottomless thing. And that even if we do wake up to realize that we healed galactic strokes, then that's still within this larger matrix of creation and forgetting and remembering. And actually, the book by Olaf Stapledon in 1937, Star Maker, who was regarded, Olaf Stapledon was regarded as the finest mind of science fiction in the 20th century and the greatest inspiration and influence of Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, and H.P. Lovecraft, who wrote this book, The Star Maker, which is about this process and this individual mind that accretes and it creates and, and discovers new dimensions of alienness that it then takes into himself. It's, it starts with him sort of floating out of his body to another alien world with people kind of like us. And then they form a kind of a telepathic composite. And then these, this composite mind grows and grows and grows until it's everything. And then it realizes that it is still just the universe, just the whole universe and not, you know, the star maker itself, which lies beyond that boundary, that singularity that every that the singularity is an artifact of consciousness in some sense, that it's the horizon of our knowing, that it doesn't happen in a literal sense, but that it's the product of our virtuality, of the limitations of our representational modes. And so, yeah. Where do you stand on where do I stand on it? I'd rather not, because then it would like grow up through my feet and try to rule my brain. But I mean, I'm actually considering getting. Uh, mm, okay, so body hacking. I have friends in Austin, Texas, who throw a body hacking conference, and um, I find this really fascinating. I think that this is one of those intersections, the fertile boundary between these these categories. You know, self and other, human and machine, right? 
that may no longer be serving us as well as we thought. Like now that we, for example, a lot of the new technologies that we're that we are working with, not really inventing, um, not exactly discovering. You know, there's a there's a gene editing complex, CRISPR Cas9, that we're that is, you know, poised to revolutionize genetic engineering and allow us to grow gills and stuff and and totally transform our our notion of the self as fixed it actually exists already it's been used by life for longer than we can remember so i don't think that magnetic implants for example uh, uh moon rebus is a really interesting cyborg performance artist that i met at mobfest in the states last year she's got a an implant in her arm connected to her phone and the phone is connected to a uh this web of seismographs all over Earth. And so whenever there's an earthquake going off, she feels it in her arm. She's, in some sense, more intimately tied than any of us. She has invented a new sense, which is to feel earthquakes all over the planet at the same time. And her next step, I mean, given her name is Moon, her next step is to get an implant in the other arm that does lunar earthquakes. And then she dances as a performance. She, she stands there, and then she dances the earthquakes that she's feeling. She's just channeling the seismographic data into human movement, which I think is beautiful. And it's not that part that I think should concern us. It's what happens when the self, once just an island, is redrawn as a complex elaboration of connections, becomes then vulnerable to hacking. This is already happening. This, this, everything we fear, and this is another, like, let's plant one here and, and point at it. Everything that we fear is going to happen has already happened. We've lived through like a dozen mass extinctions. We're already living inside of the singularity, which can arguably also be considered World War III, which uh, is the reason that we're not aware it's happening, because we are inside of it, and we've been engineered. Each one of us, my buddy Mark, Mark Healy of Uplift Connect, you know, this guy, he gave a talk this week on decolonizing festivals, and man, is it unpleasant to discover you're a domestic animal. You are the Chihuahua. <laughs> Folks, the Chihuahua was a lap dog invented by Mesoamerican royalty. And like all lap dogs, like the Bichon Frise was in France. You know, we took a wolf and we subverted it and we shrank it into being friends with us. But then we also gave it treats and we exalted it and now chihuahuas all think they're the king of everything um we did this to them in the same way that as was detailed in depth in the documentary century of the self marketing 20th century marketing shifted from product emphasis to lifestyle emphasis and tricked us all into thinking that the economy is all about our choice, serving our needs. Would you like a grande mocha cappuccino 
or a venti pumpkin macchiato. Is that an option? So the way that we've been hacked, the way that we have been chihuahuaed, is this way. And this is it. We found that it is easier, as we were warned by Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, whose brother, incidentally, Julian Huxley, coined the term transhumanism, which emerged from a misguided misapprehension of evolutionary biology and natural selection. Laissez-faire capitalists, basically predatory capitalism, disregarded the social emphasis of Darwin's co-author, Alfred Russell Wallace, who incidentally also as uh, Charles Darwin was independently wealthy and pursued this as a kind of a gentleman scholar. Alfred Russell Wallace uh, had to work for his research, so he, he, he traveled collecting specimens. And he independently derived the theory of evolution by natural selection in a malarial fever. He was a genuinely scientific mystic. And he wrote to Darwin and said, hey man, what do you think of this? And Darwin said, at least the history is that Darwin said, oh shit, I've been taking notes on this for 20 years, I better rush this stuff to publication. And the Royal Society acknowledged them as co-authors in the original paper, but there's also a fairly solid line of evidence that Darwin actually just wrote this all, that he stole Alfred Russell Wallace's research. I won't go there for now, except to bring it up. The point is that Julian Huxley was a eugenicist, that transhumanism, the word, comes like many a decent lotus out of this muck of mistaking this grand process of more intricate relating as a tool. Well, maybe as a burdened white colonial mentality, it's up to us to limit this Malthusian eruption of population, that we should limit. Yeah. That we should limit our, that we should be afraid of overpopulating Earth and limit it by sterilizing the unsavory, the insane and the brown people, you know, this kind of thing. And so transhumanism actually came from that guy and then his brother, the black sheep of the family, the guy that wrote a book about psychedelics that warned us all. You know, he, he gave us not just the doors of perception and heaven and hell, some of the, the, the fundamental, some of the, the fundamental texts on, on psychedelics, but also Brave New World and the Island, which were the dystopia and the utopia that we could consider as we navigate the future. And Brave New World is all about getting over war by programming society with bread and circus, with entertainment, media, and genetic engineering, the human being, to become the great Chihuahua. And uh, so we live in this, folks. But again, we live in a world that was patterned, in some respects, uh, equally by Julian and Albus, the technocrat and mystic, the guy who we don't really hear about and the guy who warned us about his brother. And so I think that it's like in that tension that I would suggest you hold the entire historical conversation around transhumanism, which is really, if you want to take it even deeper, um, Eric Davis wrote a book called Technosis, which is a fabulous history of how we have displaced our own desire for control and projected it into technology from the very beginning, that we have mistakenly concretized and literalized our spiritual aspirations in the material world. And in so doing, we have reinvented everything that nature did without this 
focused monkey consciousness, including wheels, which live inside you. Every one of your cells has uh, wheels in it. The ion pump inside your mitochondria, which power every living cell in an animal body is a little molecule with an axle and a wheel rotating around it. So, you know, we didn't, we didn't know that until we could look down there, but hey, there it is. But this whole conversation around transhumanism cuts both ways. It cuts into the technocratic mission for control to rule the world, but it also cuts back into yoga and this notion that to truly be more than you are is to align yourself with something greater than you are. And to the extent that we pursue these programs of control without acknowledging our motivations, as we said earlier, as, uh, as Al said earlier on the panel, you know, if you like ask yourself why you want something five times, like, why do I, okay, why do I feel that way? Okay, well, why, why do I want that? And by the time you've asked yourself why five times, like you're, you're kind of like, I don't know if you ever saw the Louis C.K. skit where he's like talking about his daughter, asking him why until he just loses his mind. He's just like, because then if nothing can't, if, if, if something isn't, then if nothing can't be, then nothing can be, just shut up, you know? So it's, it's like, that's where it goes. It takes you, it takes you, you know, if you really, if you really pursue the inquiry, Actually, the mind will get you there. The mind will take you all the way to your original awareness, to that primordial awareness, because that is the that is the root of us all. And so, you know, I think it's important for us to, uh, as we're moving forward, and especially as I told everyone who saw me at the bank, as we develop these technologies that turn each individual into a nation state, a military, a legal system, an economy. I mean, this is that's what's happening in some sense. Um, we are so much more empowered now as individuals to fuck things up than we were 50 years ago. And so much more beholden to this process of investigating why we want this shit at all. Why do I want to transcend myself? Well, probably because in my wrong estimation, I believe myself to be divided from the rest of everything. I want what I can't have because I'm here and you are there. And can't we just be one? That That is the Luciferic impulse, the erotic and transcendent. And it's actually that axis as articulated by Rudolf Steiner, who said that really there's like the luciferic which is from the men, from the many the one but then the aramonic which is from the one the many that descent into form which we ordinarily associate with the devil the the beast you know breaking of things the decay entropy you know the slow decline the heat death of the universe the beast 666 you know the de-evolution of a heat-stricken human being into the lizard brain you know, like that guy they found after he was lost on the Hawaiian volcanic rock for a week and he was literally a lizard, poor bastard. But that is Araman, that one to many. And then Lucifer is the many to the one. And so, you know, you gotta watch it. Neither of these is exclusively good or bad. They exist in balance. Why do I want to 
install a chip into my hand again. I think there are a lot of awesome reasons. I just think that we should ask ourselves why before we just do it. And I don't think just because we can suffices. You know, I grew up a student of Jurassic Park and <laughs> folks, that moment that in the film, John Hammond holds that baby raptor, it's a performance. In the books, in the books, you understand that this guy's actually a huge prick, that he's actually doing all of the breeding on another island, that this is all a show for these, these people that are supposed to write off the investors for the park, that he's, he's creating a performance where he shows that he cares, that he cares about these things that he's building, but really what he cares is just about like looking like he's a good dad, you know, and that, that in, in reality, uh, you know, that they like found this egg about to hatch and they kind of put it there. And then he says, Oh, I've, I've been there for the birth of every creature on this island. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, you haven't. Your, your other kid is burning in the backseat of your locked car, asshole. So this notion of the care that we must muster as we birth these new creations, you know, this. Uh, these new intelligences, this new ecosystem of what we're calling artificial intelligences, although I don't really believe that's a useful term anymore because now computers are writing code for computers that you're using. You're, you know, the chips on, in the phone that you've been you know, carrying around were like invented by machines. So what's artificial anymore? You are the product of experiences we share with one another through these artificial substrates. So where you end and the beast begins is questionable at the very least. And perhaps questionable at the best. Like, hmm, let's, let's play with that. Let's find that boundary. Let's go to school and examine the healthiest possible ways that we can work with the grain of evolutionary processes and move into that process and participate a kind of evolutionary yoga where we align with that decaying blooming death and birth thing that is evolution that we knew since darwin's bulldog thomas henry huxley the paleontologist who went around arguing darwin's research you know he said that we're, we're at a point now it's like he saw what was possible here, that as soon as we had a theory of evolution, that we could technologize it, that we could steal fire from the gods, basically, and control the evolutionary process, which incidentally is the whole point of Prometheus, Ridley Scott's alien prequel. If you guys didn't understand that film, it's all about the fractal Promethean stealing of fire from gods and, and the, you know, these, the engineers that created us, that also created the alien, they have a death pull. They sacrifice themselves, that first scene of that film. Uh, this is tangential, I'm sorry if you haven't seen the movie. It's the first scene, I'm not spoiling anything for you. This uh, engineer, this godlike entity, drinks this stuff that breaks him apart, and his he gives his body to become the raw material of a new world. And actually, Ridley Scott's in his, in his 70s, and I think, you know, after a lifetime of filmmaking, we should give him the liberty, uh, we should indulge him in his uh, application of the Hollywood machine to issue forth these esoteric truths in film that we're the result of the decay of the body of a god 
in the sense that, you know, the, the very substrate of our planet, as I mentioned earlier, the very chemicals of life are from the great explosion that preceded everything, that we, we were literally, if we are to buy into the Big Bang mythos, which is increasingly flimsy or, you know, decreasingly viable in this narrative collapse of physics, it's all about that poof and then out of the poof things gather you know so so uh really each of us is made of death and i think that got bounced maybe i answer this question okay anybody else i know you had stuff to say about this stuff i hope i didn't ruin his it was in a rush academic career or something i really the point is be curious, folks. Um, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't study this stuff. In fact, if you're here, it probably means you should study this stuff because otherwise it's going to be like weirdos in like, you know, with like defense budgets that are, you know, we want all this research to be going on in sunlight. You know, we want to leave the, we want to leave these processes available to oversight and community decision making. You know, that's the trend of things here. If you, as soon as you repress something, then it becomes a festering boil. Simon! Oh, SpaceX. Well, I am not qualified to issue a critique of Elon Musk's process of Mars colonization, except to say that uh, what I remember from people like Bruce Damer who have been thinking about this stuff for their entire adult lives and in conversations with, you know, scientists in numerous space agencies about this for decades, that this notion of sending rocket ships with everything we need is not, to say it's not sustainable is merely nuts. Like it's not enough. It's not the best way to proceed Robert Zubrin wrote a book in the 1990s. Robert Zubrin uh, worked for, I believe it was Lockheed or something. He was a NASA consultant uh, in the in the 80s and 90s in the uh, the uh, administration of of George W. Bush, uh, George H. W. Bush, where the you know Bush had put forward this new space mission. He was trying to be Kennedy and saying we're going to put people on Mars and we're going to do it with what they ended up calling the Battlestar Galactica approach, which is send a giant spaceship over there with a bunch of people in it, and but that's just, honestly, that's phallocentric dominator bullshit that puts the strategy for moving life between two planets on a critical point of failure. Like, there's a reason Obi-Wan Kenobi just put the sword up and allowed Darth Vader to annihilate him, because you can kill the mushroom, but you can't strike down that network with that single stroke you know that decentralized economies are more robust and so robert zubrin's whole thing was why would we send one ship why would we do that like and, and admittedly that's not elon musk's plan he wants to send a whole fleet of things but each one of those represents a you know the complete package you know it's like the product is this thing um which is you know very much like the way that uh you know, you might regard the ego as the fruit of this automatic process, and then, you know, God picks that fruit and eats it. But, you know, if you look at it, there's like a whole tree of stuff going on there, and that tree is emerging out of this matrix of relationships, and Robert Zubrin said, um, no, actually, like, if we're going to do this, we need to send robot ships ahead of us, and 
build from the Martian atmosphere the rocket fuel we'll need for the return voyage to process the atmosphere into drinkable water and breathable atmosphere. And we basically want a whole thing there for us when we get there. And he, he was swatted down by bureaucratic processes. But this is a long-term, complex, nuanced project, and it just doesn't bend the way that Elon Musk desires it to bend. And consequently, SpaceX Mars colonization is going to fail in a really predictable and probably catastrophic way if it even gets off the ground, no pun intended. Um, in fact, it was Rusty Schweikert, that guy, that guy um, the first astronaut that I, I mentioned, who said that the, uh, you, the Earth from space did not see the, the lines of cultural division. Uh, Rusty Schweikert said in a uh, panel discussion about space colonization in the 1970s that he, that in order to, I don't know why he didn't, I mean, I, I know why he didn't, but he actually said that in order to prevent a, a military industrial space colony, which is the, the International Space Station, however we, you know, we um, clothe that rhetorically, that's what it is. It's a, uh, it's a, it's like a submarine, it is a, uh, a focal point of military spending and consequently a test bed for our surveillance technologies. Rusty Schweikert said in, in, I think it was 1973, that that he would personally shoulder a rocket launcher to prevent that kind of thing from happening. And then the other members of the panel talked him down and said, look, man, like, you know, the world is big enough for everyone to fail at least once, right? You know, we need these stumbling moments on our path here if we are to learn. So we ended up with, uh, you know, a different a different course where we got the International Space Station and, and Biosphere 2 and it gets really complicated and, and, and perverse uh, beyond that. But the point is that Elon Musk, Elon Musk simply lacks, as brilliant as a guy he is, as inspirational as he is, I really, I know that if my 17-year-old brother listens to this, he's gonna hate me because he's totally like in that mode where he's learning about like social responsibility and being a member of a community and he wants to be an engineer and he's totally inspired by Elon Musk. And if I said to him like, oh my God, dude, this is charismatic power. You are implicated in this cult of science here. I can't decolonize his mind quite yet. He's 17, I, I gotta let him have his licks, you know? But basically that's it, is that the future isn't in these, just like the Venus Project, okay? These other, uh, these other seemingly great ideas that are like issued by this visionary thinker, that's totally the age of Pisces, bro. We're in the age of Aquarius, man. These are, the, the solutions are not gonna come from one guy. They're not gonna come from Obi-Wan Kenobi. They're gonna come from the ghost of Obi-Wan Kenobi which is all of us actually if you, if you if you penetrate the star wars mythos obi-wan is you know obi-wan's ghost is the holy ghost which is actually sophia the gnostic repressed feminine the body of the earth it's the wisdom of that mind at large that gregory bateson talked about in the 1950s after he helped pioneer cybernetics as a member of the oss working on the korean war trying to divide and conquer the Koreans and realize that 
in that division, he discovered the bridge between all minds and couldn't do it anymore and joined the Lindisfarne Association along with Rusty Schweikert and William Irwin Thompson and all these people who helped articulate the healthy mystical extreme of this mystic technocrat polarity each of us inhabits now. Did I address this? Cool. Okay. We have half an hour. Who's next? So you're bringing up uh, Nibiru, yes, this like lost planet. Yes. <clears throat> I don't know what to make of that. I mean, we do know that there is an asteroid belt. We do know that, that this asteroid belt was probably an object that got smashed. But I'm really careful about the, if it's not already obvious why this is important, I'm really careful about assigning literal value to a story because it just, it tends to happen that as we, it, as we, uh, increase the magnification or we zoom out to view it from a, a deeper context that we see that our narratives are like holographic resonances with you know that, like that, if you were to have a mirror behind you and in front of you it would just keep going and going well so the point with these alternate stories of our solar system and our origins and such like atlantis for example we have to be careful in how we try to literalize this sort of like collective mythology of a lost civilization and you know originally we planted the lost civilization in a particular place and we've been looking for it in the same way that we would like look for a soulmate before realizing as i did after eight years of looking for this person while in the relationship with an amazing and beautiful woman that that woman i was looking for is my own feminine right and that she was me the whole time, you know, we're all playing, to use a crass and unfortunate term, we're all playing Indian poker in the sense that we don't see this stuff until we step outside ourselves. And so I wonder, you know, like for example, Atlantis, it's not in a place, it's every place. Like we learned a couple of years ago that a comet hit the North American glacier 13,000 years ago and ended an ice age and that glacier melted and created you know, the Hood River Valley and, and all of these canyons in Oregon and, and uh, Washington and across the Pacific Northwest relatively rapidly, a matter of months or years, not this slow process that we originally thought. And that, that's, but we don't have a crater. We didn't notice this because it took microscopy to notice the tiny diamonds that this crater had thrown up in its impact and scattered across the entire Northern Hemisphere from Washington through Europe. And that these nano diamonds are the microscopic evidence of a 13,000 year old impact that rose, that in melting the glacier, raised sea levels three or 400 feet and buried all of our original temple sites around the world that exist just now offshore in what I was talking about earlier that, that uh, in, in reference to Ernst Haeckel's work and that notion that the ocean is our unconscious that we go down into it and discover life where previously we thought was merely void that the lost civilization is not off the coast of bermuda or greece it's all around us underfoot it's everywhere in ohio it's the serpent mound which was there 
when First Nations got there, pre-Clovis peoples lived just south of where I live in Austin, Texas, where we have an 18,000-year-old archaeological record with a punctuation mark in it 13,000 years ago, and those people disappeared, and then the people that showed up afterwards found their arrowheads, and were like, huh, I guess nothing's new under the sun, galactic stroke. And so we have this thing where we remember in ourselves, I think, this process of the trauma, the meteoric impact that happened not just 13,000 years ago, but 65 million years ago and billions of years ago. And we remember this catastrophic wounding and we put it in a mythology and we say, oh, that's when these aliens came and like blew up this planet and blah, 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 Nibiru. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that one day we won't quantum tunnel into histories that reveal this as empirically investigatable. You know, this, we invent new tools that grow our inquiry into new spaces and make what was not science into science, but that this terrain reveals new mysteries. And that since we are already here already on the uh, you know understanding that we inhabit a virtual reality produced by our brain, which lives within another virtual reality of particles that actually only exist within the pattern of the magnetic vortices created by the holographic interactions of virtual particles in this atemporal, pre-material uh, reality, you know, the quantum hologram from which both time and space precipitate like silver nitrate in solution. We're here, we're in the virtual reality, and thus we should be careful about saying this occurred because 20 years from now, this whole myth that I gave you about DNA and da-da-da is going to be replaced with something else. You know, if we are lucky, we should be so lucky that our kids can prove us wrong. You know, I don't want them to be passing on the same questions and the same uh problems to use a white person word problems you know it's not a you know, we don't have to fix everything but what we must evolve and therefore we should have some fun with it yeah 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 well you're having fun <laughs> that's awesome look at you anybody else you just you just have a uh, yeah Would you also like us to go to Venus? When's the female coming back? Actually, my feminist friend, Evan Snyder, who is the, co the original co-host of my podcast, Future Fossils, by the way, iTunes and Stitcher, Google Play, subscribe, rate, and review. Evan Snyder said, actually, he thinks the whole thing about Mars is just totally misguided and that Venus actually is a much better... A candidate for sustainable space colonies because you know it's like we, we kind of know how to you know we can we can float a city like mars is and you know we can use heat you know there's so much more available heat and so many more available uh you know volatiles 
on Venus than there are on Mars, which is which is like Antarctica, which is like where we're having we're going up to Greenland and Antarctica to study what life might be like on Mars. You know, it's it's cold. Well, it's not just don't go somewhere else. It's as Jamaica Stevens, as a lady, said here earlier today, it's and. The world is big enough for all of us to each pursue our passions so long as we do so with respect for how we're implicated, each of us, in that conspiracy of all, right? So those of us who would like to stay and clean up, we'll inspire the technologies required to go out there in the first place. They can't leave without this fixing first. Or not fixing, but you know, move, you know, getting on with it. Like, and that was the whole point of Biosphere 2. That was the whole thing was that we can't make space colonies without understanding the entire biosphere and then being able to carry it with us. So it's not space colonies or not. It's not Rusty Schweikert with a, you know, coming back from space and being like, no, we got to stop this military industrial space colonization thing and taking a rocket launcher to, you know, the rocket sending components of the International Space Station into orbit. It's acknowledging that these two qualities, the art and war, are two sides of the thing. That competition and collaboration, that Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace, these complementary light and dark visions of reality are aspects of a truth that's so big each of us must cower in its presence. Mysterium tremendum. Like, the longer you can hold your eyes to that and not just burn out, I commend you. Probably it makes more sense to do so standing barefoot uh, on the ground and breathing deeply and um, starting with just a little bit of direct eye contact with the sun right at the uh, horizon line where you can kind of acclimate to your retina to that intense light, you know. Don't don't just like look up at noon or you're gonna do what I saw a couple kids do here earlier today and lose themselves in that mess. Psychedelia, folks. Watch it. <laughs> um, I was in Iceland last year and I ended up till the early hours of the morning um, down a rabbit hole with an Icelandic man who is collecting the hidden people, the fake people of Iceland, their stories. Because um, they haven't been lost yet, because most of the living people of Iceland still believe in their hidden people. Anyway, we were down this rabbit hole with him, and he said that the, the hidden people are just his little, like, side project. That's just, like, his for fun thing. But his main thing that he does is he facilitates a group of psychics who are, so he, this is what he says, talking to the alien or the other things, they have like a committee. And anyway, they're entering this committee and talking to them. And you were saying that with the whole stroke thing that maybe we had the technology to communicate, what do you think the possibility is that the psychic medium sort of could be the facilitator to communication? Well, the, the science fiction author I referenced there, uh, John C. Wright, is, weirdly enough, was converted in his middle age by from atheism to Catholicism. Okay? 
<laughs> Bear with me. He's a rationalist, skeptical fool who said, God, if you exist, prove it. Because the fact of it is that really, you know, theologically, philosophically, you can really, if, if there is a being more intelligent than you, then you can't be expected to detect it if it doesn't want you to discover it. That, you know, this is the argument that, that God can really only, God really only appears through revelation, you know, which is why God is not the province of empirical science. Because God's smarter than you, fool. And so he said, he said, all right, well, the best that I can do as a scientist is ask God to show me that God exists. And then two days later, he had a heart attack and ended up in the hospital where he received a religious visitation that he doesn't talk about, but he, he says completely convinced him that he should be a Catholic. And then, like, since then, he's been writing all of this incredible uh, sci-fi about these, uh, these nested cosmic orders from the perspective of a recovered atheist, which I find quite compelling, actually, because there aren't that many science fiction authors nowadays who are not like H.P. Lovecraft, basically writing this visionary transhuman stuff as like, no, I'm having these visions, but no, this is just fiction. You know, and they're really trying to like interpolate that fiction, non-fiction boundary. This guy's like, I'm writing science fiction, but fuck, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's uh, probably this way. Let's face it. So as far as that's concerned, I do believe that if we are communicating with another order of intelligence, it's only showing up on radar when it wants to. And that is my experience of aliens to put not too fine a point on it that you know that they they show up when they want and when i brought a camera back to that same beach they were not there <laughs> sorry buddy there's a uh, galactic or there's like a cosmic uh, seduction going on there like you gotta, you gotta ask for permission and then maybe she'll show you a little leg you know what i more like directly meant was the the actual medium of using psychics to communicate that being like the the dash between the a and the b hmm. The Rose Cross, actually, yeah, John C. Wright writes extensively about Rosicrucian, the future of Rosicrucianism in the series I'm talking about, Count to the Eschaton, uh, which I recommend to, to no one unless you're ready for, uh, you know, 3,000 words of insanely psychedelic far future post-human sci-fi starring a Texan mathematician. Maybe you're into that because you're still here after I've been talking for two hours. <laughs> On that note, I want to put this out. This is my email list. Folks, I just, this this represents my last talk, my last performance on a month-long tour of Australia. I will come back, I promise you. But in the meantime, I hope you will let me share my music and art and writing with you. I do my stuff in public so that I can make my own creative process open to a conversation. And I really 
try to do the insane thing of establishing like personal connections with everybody I meet and like letting me see your artwork and just remembering that I'm the product of a community and that everything that I'm doing is in service to you guys. And so if you'd like to stay up on that kind of stuff and, and uh, let me, you know, continue to like drop cool ideas in your lap, then could you pass that out? Yeah. Or maybe can you just like start that somewhere? And then we can, we have time for another couple questions. Yeah. The albatross. It's gonna stay afloat. More about that. The albatross. So my senior year of college as a student at University of Kansas, I took a couple seminars that changed my life. One of them was animal communication, where I read some papers that basically determined everything I've said to you tonight about the emergence of free order from you know the constantly unfolding manifold of possibility. And then the other one was uh, an animal flight seminar where I learned about how the wings of different creatures in different ecological niches are similar to one another depending on the, the demands of that lifestyle. You know, so you, you have like a solar glider, like the planes that Facebook is putting up to broadcast internet.org, their own curated bullshit pseudo internet over these uh, developing nations you know, where they can provide connectivity, which really means sell ads to, you know, Indians. But anyway, these gliders or these drones, they're up there trying to fly on as little energy as possible. They're solar powered. You know, you really want that thing to be as light as it can be, which is why birds have hollow bones and they're, they're actually, they got a way better lung than we do. Uh, their pulmonary system is open-ended. The mammal system is a disaster, folks. As soon as I can engineer this differently, I will. The mammal system is a bellows system. The lung is a dead end. But in birds, the lung is open-ended. It, it's circular breathing through the entire bird. And it, it goes in one direction and it goes all the way around. And it, every breath the bird takes fills it flows through all of its bones, like our circulatory system does. It's this uh, much more elegant and efficient thing because it's not just, and then, you know, like if you really, like even a whale, even the incredible ways that whales ex have learned to make the most of oxygen and, and, and make their breathing more efficient. Even a whale, like every time it breathes out, a vast amount of air is stuck there in the bottom of those lungs. You know, just getting old, like news. So birds don't, birds have it figured out. And uh, the albatross and all these other soaring birds, like turkey vultures and other animals that have to spend a long time without touching down. Seagulls are a pretty good example. Yeah, they're kind of in between. They can flap somewhat, but you'll also see a seagull kind of riding, surfing across the waves surfing across the breakers because that's where there's this this line this, this boundary and that you know you can catch that or you know if you're a vulture then the way that heat convects you know and you can ride these thermals so it turns out a long and skinny wing is best for catching air like that a surfboard you know if you really want to ride to, to, to flip it 90 degrees to from bird to board you know and surf the wave across it rather than along it then you want a long and narrow plane of fiberglass or what have you. And so if you want something else, if you want like a bat wing, you know, a big flapping 
ungainly thing, but you get you get lift fast and it carries you a short distance and it, it costs a lot to get from tree to tree, but you can get there, you know, without having to rely on thermals or the uh, the rolling air along a wave, then then you internalize that lift and you pick it up in stout wings. You know, you, you, you get a fatty wing, like the first plane had fatty wings, you know? So this is an example of what evolutionary science calls convergence, which is just how similar conditions lead to similar solutions time and time again. Like eyes. Turns out that the eye evolved like seven times at least, or multicellularity, which at last count occurred like 40 something times. These challenge our mythology of, you know, fish to iPod commuter, you know, that this, that, that like evolutionary is this linear process. It's not, it's this totally explosive branching bushy thing, just like Ernst Haeckel and Charles, Charles Darwin both drew in their initial attempts to illustrate the evolutionary process as a bush. You know, it's obvious a good idea, you know, will sprout in more than one mind, right? So there you go. You're out. You're done. I'll talk to you later. I just spent two hours talking to you about death. What else do you want to know? How did America end up with Donald Trump? Because it's what needed to happen. If we are going to face our collective bullshit together, I can't think of a better way to bring it about than to not allow the, you know, the hegemonic re rhetoric of neoliberal technocratic nonsense to perpetuate through the Clinton dynasty. I mean, really what's going on in, in my country right now is... Yeah, it's beautiful in the same way that like the like explosion of a placenta out of somebody is beautiful. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess as far as the topic of perfection and necessary evil is concerned, my stance on this has always been since I sat out with my, my friend in 2009 in Denver, looking out of her apartment across the skyline of Denver, saying, how much revolution does it really take to make the shift? Do we have to lose the entire skyline or would just one building be enough? And of course, we're just reproducing in that conversation now that I look back on it the issue of 2001 and 9-11 and what happened there to usher us into this 21st century consciousness where you know you can you can look at the the twin tower attacks as an act of arguably evil magical acupuncture on the body of the planet attacking the very point where that uh, transatlantic telegraph cable anchored and constellated into a global economic nexus. And so of course we had to like strike down the Obi-Wan of US commerce. As Henry Kissinger said, you know, in the 90s, he said he was he was considering writing a work of fiction in which the United States had to fall for 
a global order to emerge because the U.S. is standing in opposition to it. And while I don't think that it's going to happen through the actions of these rich white technocrats exclusively, they play a part. They, they see the system. They just don't see themselves. Um, so what do you do with that? I guess, you know, the, the, the only thing I can say, the last thing I will say about Donald Trump is that I saw this awesome meme. And I think that if we can just hold this in our own hearts, if we can see the, this situation as it is, this meme was of a fake CNN article because fake news is all the rage now. There's a fake CNN thing and it was Donald Trump with a desert prophet, patriarchal Jew beard. And he was like, LSD saved my life. I was a boorish politician until I had the psychedelic experience. I only pray that somewhere in the multiverse this happened and that I can rest in peace aware that yes, it does in infinite alternatives because the simplest explanation is they all exist. It's healing everything. Oh, good. Gonna come up. Yeah, we got to do that. We do have to do that, folks. We got to, yeah, we got to go there. So I hope that kind of gets to your issue about death a little bit, you know? <laughs> Some of these, uh, these folks that talk about transhumanism do so because they are afraid of death, you know, because they want to live forever so they don't have to die, that they, they can invent the technology that can give you the psychedelic experience without the possibility of a bad trip. I'm not naming names here, but beware of people like this because that point of view conceals a deep discomfort and a, a, a sad evasion of the facts of life, which those same artificial methods that prolong the human life we're participating in this accelerating technocultural surround that's forcing us into a process of not only uh, biological but psychological transformation that's only getting faster. So, like, yeah, maybe you'll, maybe this, you know, this guy will live forever. Maybe Carlos Cucaburro will live forever. But, dude, you're not even going to be that same guy in five years. And then, then you're not going to be that same guy in five minutes. And then you're not even going to, you know, you're not even going to indulge the nonsense that you are ever the same person from moment to moment because you're so because you're not a human being anymore you're a human becoming and you're constantly in the process of transforming and adapting and you you went from a noun to a verb you denominalized and lost your name in the process of becoming what you are yeah i actually have an entire podcast episode of future fossils about westworld where i get into it with my buddy michael phillip who's the host of third eye drops podcast Another amazing podcast. Yeah, we get into the philosophy of Westworld, which is an incredible show, and I highly encourage that you watch it because it's it's one of those one of the few shows on television right now that's addressing, I think, some of the the most pressing philosophical questions of our time. But you know, I don't have we don't have time to get into that now. And in fact, I already gave an hour and a half of it to that conversation, which you can find online. What do you think about? the situation with um, with the internet where you have Facebook and then you have you get fed back information which you're already seeking so you get people who are only interested in one thing and they don't get exposed to new ideas what do I think about the filter bubble and we're meant to have some conflict and we're meant to maybe be able to grow out of that a bit and it's 
do you seek out do you seek out media that reinforces your disdain for the filter bubble? <laughs> do you seek, are you are you hoping that I will agree with you and say that the filter bubble is a bad thing? Because some part of me really wants to. No, I'm just I'm just curious what I don't know. I I just something you said earlier made me think about it. And I'm like, well, yeah, watch it. it. The filter bubble is nothing new, folks. We we seek out like minds. We seek out opinions like our own. We get together and say, this is God, and that's profane, and let's go march on them and burn them down. And we've been doing that since yayo, since forever, right? But the more aware we become, the more, like I said, you know, the, the more awareness we can bring to our own processes, our own cognition, then we notice, and we, we're actually, you know, this whole conversation is standing on the shoulders of the Western rational enlightenment, which people talk a lot of shit on nowadays, but you got, you know, everybody says no to your mom before you come back and say yes again. You know, we have to differentiate in order to get that that distance that we can then, you know, it's thesis, antithesis, synthesis. You know, this is the process by which cells divide to form organs and organisms. So this whole thing about like learning our cognitive biases, you know, like thinking critically about our thinking catching ourselves in the act of seeking confirmation, looking to one another, be like, hey, do you agree? Oh, I'm doing it again. Damn it. You know, but that's, that's there. And it's not bad. It's not bad that we do this, because if we didn't do this, then we couldn't, we wouldn't actually know how to communicate. You know, um, we would not, if we didn't have these, these uh, faculties for, uh, this, this sort of primitive reality agreement architecture, then uh, we would never have invented tribes at all. We wouldn't have uh, found a way to actually identify each other. You know, the whole, the whole notion, of, you know, the evolutionary biology of the self is actually emergent from a matrix of reciprocal relationships in what they call a eusocial organisms that you learn the other members of your tribe so that you know who's cheating and who's playing ball that's the moment at which these individual creatures are living in a tight you know closely enough that they start to form uh what eo wilson called the super organism and newsflash folks you have never been outside of that the human being is profoundly just a node within what evolution has been acting on for this whole time, which is the tribe, the group of people, you know, that I mean, really evolution operates at all levels simultaneously and uh, really like at all moments in time simultaneously. The, you know, there's excellent research on the future causing the past, but we don't, we'll get into that later. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, basically, you know, you just got to uh, notice how you happen out of everything that everybody shows you. You know, they say, you know, you start as just a ball of learning. And they say, your name is Michael, or whatever. And you say, okay. And so, from that moment, each of us is living in the second, or the, the third layer virtual reality. That first layer, the, the quantum hologram, the second layer, the nervous system, the third layer, language and community. And uh, 
so really like virtual reality is, isn't even like the fourth layer it's just part of the third layer it's the immanentization of the noosphere you know it's the concretization of this mental virtual reality that already exists so you know each of us is like you were saying you know we're just but it's, it's not just like if you put a mirror in front of you and behind you it's like if you just put two mirrors together and then you call whatever that thing in the middle is is you the still point of colliding infinities yeah i don't know is that good oh, it's, interesting. it's interesting i'll take it once again folks curiosity the antidote to fear stay curious my friends stay curious i think we have just time for one more question and then i can take you over to the gallery that's probably the shortest jump Ugh, it's gonna be hot in there instead let's go to the bus anybody that wants to follow me over to the liminal caravan to talk after this i gotta stop it in the gallery first but then we can we can just keep this going until i have to see another panel discussion at 10.45 a.m. Let's go it. Let's do it, folks. Just one more question. Come on, be bold. What would you tell us if people already Well, I mean, I would put my, and I probably should, because all of you represent God only, you know, like, I have no idea what you all know, you know? There's multiple lines of intelligence, right? So, like, you're all developed in ways I'm not. That's, like, I'm, I'm doing you a service now, but then later, you know, like, Dean, gave me an awesome background without which I could not give this talk, okay? I can't do that. I mean, I haven't learned to do that. It wasn't my path. So I don't know that I would try, I would not try to tell you all one thing for starters. And for two, if I, if you know, like by recognizing your your innate Buddha nature, you know, that, that part of you by truly recognizing you, by mirroring you in that infinite hall of mirrors and recognizing that this is, you know, the awareness that's appearing as different people, then I would just prostrate myself to you and say, teach me what you know. Because how else am I going to do this shit for the next audience? I mean, I got to sit there and like really learn from every one of you if possible. Yeah. I hope it's possible. Thanks, friends. I'm going to pack this up. There is that clipboard going around. Feel free to hang out and stick around, and we can keep this going somewhere else if you want, or we can just let it happen on the interwebs. And then again, when I come back. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent, ad-free, entirely listener-supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing, you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future then you can avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com slash michael garfield or you can just leave a review at apple podcasts that's more helpful than you know reach out to me personally at michael garfield on twitter or instagram and have a wonderful eon